Let's pray. Lord, your word is powerful. Sometimes, though, we get distracted. Our minds wander to different things. I just pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to hear everything that you're saying to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you would impact us with your word, not only that we would be inspired, but that we would be changed and uh, that we would be equipped, that we would live differently as a result of what we've heard. Lord, we ask that your spirit who moved on people to pen these words, that your anointing would be on the word as it's spoken and that your word would accomplish everything that you want it to do. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you know if your church is successful? For that matter, how do you know if you're successful? Did you ever think about that? A lot of people wonder about that, and of course everybody, I think, wants to be successful, whatever that means. But a couple weeks ago, well, it was a couple months ago now, Pastor Rob Spar from Hudson Presbyterian put out a email to all the pastors, all the evangelical pastors in Hudson, and he says, how does your church measure success? And I said, man, he's always got a medal. You know, why did he have to bring that? So all of a sudden, we started on this email, you know, where everybody's copying everybody else, so there are 400 emails back and forth about how do you measure success? How does your church measure success? I think it's a good question. And what I've discovered is that each church has its own criteria for what creates success. Now, we know how the world measures success. There are the three Bs, bucks, bodies, and buildings. How many of you have heard of the killer Bs, the three Bs? Bucks, bodies, and buildings. How much money do you pull in? How many people do you have? I got so tired in the early years of being a pastor of having other pastors come up and say, how many are you running? It's like you're, you know, I don't, I used to raise cattle. I don't do that now. I don't run anybody. Actually, I'm pastoring people. Some of them walk. Some of them are crawling. Some of them are totally stuck, and we're trying to get them out of where they are, but we don't run people. So guys always looked at me like, either you're a failure or you're really weird. Okay. How would Jesus answer the question, what makes a successful church? Remember, Jesus was a master at church growth, especially the day that 5,000 were eating out of his hand. And he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no part with me. And he said, these are spiritual words. And all of a sudden, he was down to 12. From 5,000 to 12 in one day. Think about that. And you say, now, why would the Lord do that? It's because he knew people were coming for the wrong reasons. And by the way, the Bucks building and bodies thing can be achieved in various ways that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. I uh, received the confession of a pastor who pastored a church of a thousand people, and after building this church of a thousand people, the Holy Spirit fell on him one night in his kitchen. He didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. He had been raised in the tradition that there was no Holy Spirit, and that uh, that was all stuff that happened back 2,000 years ago. And he said all of a sudden, while he was there on his kitchen floor, because the Spirit of God fell on him, he said, I realized that I had done a bunch of stuff without ever asking God. And now God was in my kitchen, and I was realizing I had a bunch of people in my church, but I don't know how many were really disciples and how many of them were filled with the Spirit. Think about that. Then there was the time as a youth pastor when all of a sudden our children's church disappeared one Sunday. They were gone. We showed up for church, and there was not one kid. They were all gone, and you wonder what happened. We found out a Baptist church down the street uh, was giving out free prizes that day. 
And sometimes people will follow things that have very little. Now, those kids were being manipulated, okay? It wasn't their fault. I'm not blaming them. But people follow other people for various reasons, and churches are full for various reasons. So this question about success is a, is a very important question. Well, River of Life has a vision, and we have a mission that define how we see success. There are two statements that define River of Life. We have a, a vision statement. It describes who we are becoming. It's not that we're there yet, but it's a picture of what we want to become. It answers the question of who are we, and it's foundational to what we do. Before we go on to what we do, though, we need to answer the question, who are we? Because you will do out of who you are. If as a pastor, I preach messages to you out of what I knew rather than who I was, uh, there would be a gap there, wouldn't there? I remember many years ago, a church we were in, the pastor got up and he said, after all his kids were adults, he said, I need to confess to you today that I have failed my family. Janice was there that day. It was a heartbreaking moment because his kids were not uh, in right relation. Most of his kids weren't talking to him at that point. And he said, you know, he said, I've taught you about the family and here I've disqualified myself because I have not taken care of my family. So if I'm not sharing out of who God is making me, there's a gap there. And that gap is a, is a hypocrisy gap. And all of us have a little bit of that in us, whether we admit it or not. A gap between who we want to be and who we really are. Does that make sense? So who we are is important. And then there's a mission statement, and that describes what we should be doing in the world. For us, Scripture has to be the basis. And a lot of churches are operating on a business model. They're not operating on a scriptural model. They've chosen a business model because business models can bring quick success. So let's talk about our purpose statement just for a moment here. We are called to be a community of people filled with the Holy Spirit. That's where we begin. Let me tell you why we begin there. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I don't want you to even go out and make disciples. I don't want you to start doing what I told you to do until you've met another member of the family, the Holy Spirit. He said, before you go out, you need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, they had been walking hand in hand with Jesus, 12 of them. 11 were standing after Judas fell, and they were walking hand in hand with Jesus. Now what Jesus is telling them is, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and you are going to be so transformed. The Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you are going to be different. You will never be the same. And the same way that I walked with you from village to village and did miracles and did amazing things, now the Spirit of God is going to live in you and flow through you, and what I did is now going to be normal. I think it was a moment of horror, of abject horror for the kingdom of Satan when all of a sudden, after the day of Pentecost, there were a bunch of people that looked just like Jesus walking around doing the same miracles that Jesus did. Think about that. They were just like him. It wasn't too many chapters later in Acts 4 when two of the disciples are arrested for preaching in Jesus' name and doing a miracle. That's funny, healing without a license pulled over by the police. And they're told, you are not to go out and preach in that name anymore. What do the disciples say? Well, you have to decide whether it's more important for us to obey you or to obey God. And the answer to them was obvious. They went back to their people and they cried out to the Lord and the Spirit of God filled them again. The anointing of God fell on them. 
But it said something. It said that those leaders, those Pharisees, the Sanhedrin that called them to account, took note that those men had been with Jesus. What they didn't understand is the Holy Spirit, who had the same nature and character of Jesus, was now living in every one of them. That same spirit that had come on Christ in that baptism was now upon each one of the disciples. So we start there. We are a community of people filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a lot of churches talk about that. Okay, and I'm not here to put down other churches, but we need to understand if we're going to be biblical, we need to do it Jesus' way. And I know some people say, well, it, it's not like it was 2,000 years ago. And I say, God never intended to change it. It was right. It was right then, and it's right now. Isn't that? It's correct. Acts 2.42. Let's see what happens there. After the Spirit falls on them, and Peter shares this amazing uh, testimony and calls the people to salvation, a number of people come to the Lord. 3,000 people are saved. And it says, it, there, here's the description. There are seven descriptors. And you've got, I believe, in your bulletin on the back, uh, there are seven different uh, aspects of community, what it means to be a spirit-filled community are on the back of that. And it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the first thing is we are a community of discipleship. It said they loved the word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We are a community of God's word, a community of discipleship, a community of making disciple makers is what God has called us to do. They went from home to home and they shared. We're a community of fellowship, kingdom relationships. This goes beyond just having a meal together or watching a uh, NFL game or something like that. It's actually sharing the life of Christ, all the one another's of the word, building one another up in your most holy faith, encouraging one another, confessing your sins one to another that you may be healed. Pray one for another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. All the one another's that are out there, 31 of them that I've found, there might be more if you count them, is all part of the dimension of fellowship. We're also called to be a covenant community. It says they broke bread together. Jesus did something with his disciples. Did you notice how many times things coalesced and happened around a meal? There's something powerful when you eat together. I love the uh, picture that Janice got in the dream that she shared about heaven. It was around a table. Again, I think Jesus loves to be with us. He wants us to join him at the table. What does it say in Ephesians? It says he has pulled us up and seated us with him in heavenly places. Whether that's with him where he reigns or at his table, the Lord has a place for us. He wants to be with us. And he wants us to learn to share uh, the life together. So we are a covenant community, people who break bread together with one another. Communion was part of that. And by the way, communion was not something that they waited to certain times. Almost every time the early church had a meal, they would remember what the Lord had done for them. And it was part of their meal. 
They made it part of their uh, feast together to uh, celebrate communion and pray together. As I read about the early church, I love what they did. If anybody was sick and not able to come, they would uh, prepare food from the feast, and it was taken out to the people that could not make it uh, to the gathering that day because everybody was considered part of the body. It was a covenant community. I love that about our church because I see people always uh, taking care of one another. They were also a community of prayer, the fourth dimension, prayer. Acts 4 is a great example that I just mentioned uh, when something happened that came against uh, the purpose of God, they joined together in prayer, and it says the place where they were meeting was shaken. Literally, the power of God was so uh, amazing in that moment that the place was shaken. How many of you have ever been in a meeting that way, where you feel literally the presence of God is so heavy, it's almost as though you're being shaken? I've been in those meetings. That's what happened in Acts 4. In Acts 13, uh, verse 1, it says, The church at Antioch, there were prophets, teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had, brought up, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So these people frequently got together and said, hey, let's spend time with the Lord. Let's pray. Let's listen to what God is saying, and let's do what he's telling us to do. This is how the church operated. They were a community of prayer. They were also a community of radical stewardship in ways that probably go beyond what many of us have ever seen. It says, nobody considered what he owned was his own. We're talking about a total surrender that says, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. I give everything I have to you for your purpose, for your will, for your design. I know that many of you live that way. You have homes, but you give them to the Lord for whatever he wants to do. And uh, I'm just encouraged when I see that kind of community happening, uh, honoring God with the first fruits, making the Lord of all that we have, making him the Lord of all that we have. That's part of being a community of radical stewardship. And also saying, when the Lord says, give, we give. When he says, go, we go. We're also a community of worship, coming together to declare his praises and experience the fullness of his presence. Worship is not a religious exercise. It's the overflow of intimacy, of knowing the living God. We join together in worship and praise and enter into his manifest presence. It's not just about the music. As a matter of fact, I think sometimes we get stuck on the music too much. So I ask the question, if we didn't have electric, if we didn't have a sound system, if we uh, were just sitting in a living room somewhere alone, could we worship the Lord? I can. Sometimes it's better because you're not distracted by all the stuff, like microphones that won't work. Not, not Kurt's fault. He did his best. But you hear what I'm saying? I loved uh, the story. Uh, Bishop Johnson said one Sunday morning, the power went out on the west side of Akron right before the service. And uh, one of the uh, worship leaders came running back through the dark hallways there because when their lights go out there, they have emergency lights, but it's still dark. And said, Bishop, we can't have service this morning. There's no electric. Bishop said it posed a unique theological postulation there. <laughs> Can we worship God if there's no electric? Hallelujah. I just had to hear the answer there. And he said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to go out and we're going to tell people to get as close to one another as they can. That was the first good thing. 
He said, secondly, he said, if anybody's afraid, if anybody wants to leave, that's okay. That's the Gideon's army thing. <laughs> he said, nobody left anyway. And he said, they just began to sing songs. People would sing the words and people would follow after. And he said, there was one of the most amazing worship times and the Lord showed up. No need to have batteries included. Hallelujah. We, we are too much about staging sometimes. Do you know that? In the American church. And it breaks my heart sometimes when I go to, um, on a foreign missions trip and I see what they've done is they've totally duplicated what we do in the United States. Sound systems and wires and everything, and they, they want Americans to send sound equipment. And then there's the church, the persecuted church in Asia, meeting in homes and living rooms, not knowing if the police are going to show up. And I guarantee the power wattage there of the Holy Spirit's presence is higher than most of the places where people are staging. So I don't want to make us feel guilty about that. I like having PowerPoint. It's okay. But being a community of worship is more than that. A place where signs and wonders happen regularly. We've seen a lot of signs and wonders over the years, haven't we? We've seen a lot of people that have been healed. I've got to tell you, uh, Jeannie's, uh, and Jeannie is out of town. She's with her father today, uh, who's very ill, and she's visiting him. But when she shared about her brother, when we, the day that we prayed, I knew that those tumors were gone. I just knew it. I knew it was like God gave me the, it was a gift of faith. And I just knew they were gone. How many times, how many of you have been healed supernaturally, ways that nobody can understand? Look at this. But I want to see more. Not only that, I want to see it happen out there. I have prayed for people in supermarkets, in parking lots, in schools, in various places, and I've seen God show up. One, one kid told me, he said, he said, but we're not in church. We're in a parking lot. I said, that's okay. God healed his ears. He had this terrible infection so bad that he was going to have this surgery. God healed his ears. He said, I can hear. I can hear out of both ears. And he went off praising God. That was a worship service. We're also finally a community of witness. And I've got to tell you, if the other six things are happening, if the other six dimensions of community are happening in our midst, the seventh is a natural outflow. Because when people see that kind of stuff happening, they go, who are you guys? Can I come? I want to be there. I want to be part of that. And that's what the Lord wants to do. We become a community of evangelism or witness, living out, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Notice when the church is really the church that people are drawn and added daily. And this is something God is restoring in us. I think it's something that he wants to do in us. I'm excited about our, the youth group is going to do the Alpha course again starting this spring. I'm excited, and I think we all need to pray because I, I believe God is going to do miracles with people that come in because we have a lot of students that will come in for Alpha that have no church background at all, and they come in and they experience the presence of God. Isn't it true? It's amazing. And I'm excited about what the Lord is going to do. Now, if you look at the other side of that paper, there are four Ds. We talked about who we are wanting to become. This is what we're called to do. Okay, four aspects of our, of our mission in Christ. I see Isaiah as a type of the church. And I just want to read out of Isaiah chapter 6. We're very familiar with that. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet, and with two, they were flying. 
By the way, I just, just a little aside here. How many of you have noticed that the angels described in the Bible don't look like the ones in the paintings at the art museum? They're infinitely bigger, more complex, and scarier, okay? And the angels were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. We talk about living life, and I haven't shared this for a while, but we talk about living life in 4D. You know what 3D is, right? Three dimensions, height, depth, and uh, the, you know perception. Uh, one of the greatest breakthroughs for any artist is the ability to draw in 3D, to be able to put perspective in art. Uh, if you don't have that, you have the Egyptian stick figures. You know, they started out in 2D in the Egyptian art. So uh, let's talk about this. Discipleship is the first D. Isaiah has an encounter with the living God. As Henry Blackaby says in the series Experiencing God, he experiences God. Instantly, Isaiah knows his world will never be the same. My job as a pastor is to bring you face-to-face with God as much as I can. Because when you have an experience with a living God, your life will never be the same. I can't change you. You can't change you. But if you come to know God, if you come to experience him face-to-face, you say, can that happen? I believe God wants that to happen to everybody. He will change you and your life will never be the same. Isaiah has been a prophet already. This is chapter 6. But now he sees God with new eyes. He sees God as he really is in all of his power and glory and not in Isaiah's own concept of who God is. Can I tell you, probably all of us have a smaller picture of God than he really is? So this is the beginning of a relationship where God progressively reveals himself to Isaiah and reveals himself to us. The more we know God and the greater our knowledge of his true power and might, the greater his work in us. If you've been walking with God for a while, you know that he's infinitely more awesome, powerful, and merciful, and loving than you imagine. The more you get to know him. Isn't it true? The more we give ourselves to God, the more he reveals. Now, some people will say here, if we're talking about the mission of the church, why aren't you talking about salvation? Let me tell you why. Because we have actually perverted the gospel. We have given the people the idea that all they have to do is pray a prayer and have this spiritual transaction with God, and it doesn't matter how they live after that. Imagine this. Imagine that you are getting married. Some of us are married. Some of us aren't married. Some of us may never be married, but whatever. Imagine with me here for a moment that you're going to the altar to be married, and the person that just said, I do, that pledges all these things in covenant, walks away with the expectation of never seeing you again for the rest of their lives. We need to think about walking with the Lord more like the covenant of marriage than about some sort of activity that we do with the Lord. And the theology that underpins a lot of this is the once saved, always saved. If I pray and I receive the Lord, it doesn't matter what I do. At least I have my ticket to get into heaven. Where was that thing? 
Instead, it's for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. It's no matter what comes our way, I am bound to him. In our men's uh, discipleship group yesterday, Michael Pollison did a great job of talking about trusting the Lord. And he, he separated competency of God from uh, the whole idea of, God, of, the, of the ethics of God. Do we trust God's ethics? Do we believe he's going to do the right thing on our behalf? Well, we had to be very honest as we looked at this because God sees the world different than we do sometimes. And people like Stephen, the Lord said, you know, Stephen's death is going to serve the kingdom of God more than his life. I'm bringing him home. We go, now, wait a minute. I'm going to trust the Lord. But if he's going to do that, I shared a story from many years ago, and it's okay if we don't finish this. We'll get to the rest of this, but I feel like we need to look at this for a moment. Steve Stewart, can I share a page out of your life? He's not sure. I'll owe you lunch. Steve was a young collegian at Kent State, learning to trust the Lord in the areas of discipleship. He was one of the few students I knew that had two cars, and uh, his mom asked to borrow one car one day. Was it a rabbit? It was a Volkswagen of some kind. And as the story goes, as she was driving down the road, the car started to smoke, and his mom pulled over to the side of the road as the smoke became more intense, got out of the car, and there was a bit of a burnt offering there. And I'll never forget Steve coming to fellowship that week, and he said, I'm really learning to trust the Lord, and the Lord has been speaking to me about giving, giving him everything that I have, and I just dedicated my cars to the Lord and then he shared what happened with the car, and then he says, I was getting ready to dedicate my girlfriend to the Lord. <laughs> this is where it gets serious, right? <laughs> I still think that's one of the best examples of trusting the Lord. When we say yes to the Lord, it can mean for better or for worse, but the point is, is that God always has your best interest at heart, no matter what happens to you. I've had people tell me their car broke down only to have somebody come to rescue them and they ended up sharing Christ with this person and all these good things happened and came out of that. You can't engineer those things. And you have to say, no, not everything that happens to me is God's will because we live in a broken world. But if I continue to praise God and look to him, he will work all things together for good for me. But discipleship is what it's all about. It's not just salvation. That's the initial phase. Discipleship is walking with the Lord every day. So if you want to ask me how successful is our church, it's not how many people prayed a prayer that year. It's how many people are walking with the Lord and teaching other people to walk with the Lord. So it's not bucks, bodies, and buildings. But it's how many people you're going to take with you into eternity. And Jen, excellent word today. What do you take with you to eternity? Your cars, your house, your bank accounts? There's only, there are very few things you take with you in eternity. The big thing is relationships of people that you loved and you led to Christ. When I, when I, when I run into somebody, this is going to sound funny. Over Christmas, I ran into a, a guy that years ago I discipled at Kent State. He's now a pastor. Uh, he's a children's pastor at a large church in Atlanta, and he has this multi-ethnic group of kids right outside of the city from all these different nations. And he's leading them to the Lord and training them up how to walk with the Lord. Those are my grandkids. When I go to heaven, we're related. You understand how this works? I have spiritual grandkids. So that's what's eternal. What's really important to you? 
What's important to God? Good word. That's why discipleship is different than just punching a, a card for the Lord. Mark 13, 313, when Jesus chose his disciples, it says this, Jesus went up on a mountainside, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. Now, there are three things that he wants them to do with him. Number one, that they might be with him. God just wants to be with you. He just wants to be with you. Have we, have we understood this yet? God starts out in Genesis chapter 2, the first history of relationship between God and man. And he's got a place and a time that he's meeting with Adam and Eve. He's got a daily appointment with them where he comes and walks in the garden with them. Jesus, with his disciples, says, I just want to be with you. And when he leaves, he says, don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you because I want to be with you. And there's the city that we're going to be with the Lord. Are you starting to get the picture of what God wants? He wants to be with you. He didn't come to institute a religion. That's one way I agree with Karl Marx. Religion can be the opiate of the people. Religion can put people to sleep. It's like a bad drug. Relationship is what I get excited about. And knowing, people knowing the living God. This is a message for us this year. Where we need to go is the church. The second thing is deliverance. Discipleship and then deliverance. And people go, oh, that's a loaded word, Pastor Joe. You shouldn't use that because there are a lot of wacky people out there using the D word, deliverance, and doing funny things. Yes, there are. There are people that, if you go for deliverance, that will sit on your chest and whack you on your head with a hymn book and do all kind of stuff. That's not deliverance. Like I, and I'll tell you why I use the word. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Deliver us from the evil one. How often are we supposed to pray that prayer? The Lord's Prayer. You pray for daily bread, you need to pray for daily deliverance. We don't get this. And we need to get it. God wants us to be free. So the way I grew up in the church, and this is not pointing fingers to the church, this is most of the churches I know it, most of the churches I've visited over the years. There are people that sit in those churches that have been there for year after year after year. And they've never said, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? What are the things that stand between you and me? Because I don't want there to be anything. Can you imagine being married to your husband or wife? and not growing for 30 or 40 years. You don't have to imagine with some married couples, but anyway. No, it's true. There's no communication. It's terrible. But there have been moments in our life, Janice, where we've sat down and we said, you know, we need to work this out, and, we need to have a, and we've had breakthroughs. I can think back breakthroughs that we've had in our marriage. It's all about growing. As a matter of fact, I want you to know Janice is a, the primary dedicated sanctification, life-changing device that God has put in my life. Hallelujah. And she's a blessing to me because I know she has my best interests at heart. That's why when Francis Frangipani said, you know, all these guys have been asking God to speak to them, and when God does, he said, you know, sounds a lot like my wife. <laughs> so the point is, the point is, is a lot of people say, I just want this much of Jesus I don't want too much. I don't want, I, want to, I don't want enough to make me uncomfortable. I want enough to just be able to get into heaven. I want enough to feel good, a little bit, a little joy, glow in my stomach here. 
but not enough to transform me and make me love my neighbors that are really hard to love. You don't know my neighbors. You don't know my boss. You don't know my mother-in-law. You don't know, I mean, we, you know, you could say whatever you want. The point is, is that God wants to do a work of transformation in us and transform the people around us. And he wants us to be intentional about that. Ten years ago, when the Lord brought us into uh, the whole understanding of freedom prayer and the ministry that we do, I was, um, I've never been the same. And um, sometimes people go through freedom class and they go, well, that was great. I'm glad that's over. Every time I go through freedom class, I, I'm, I'm a poster child for freedom prayer. If you want to talk about how many strongholds the Lord has broken in me, I can beat all of you. Pride is the last one left. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you hear what I'm saying? We need to be intentional about, about growing in the Lord. Most of the church is stuck and they never grow. They never move beyond. I had this idea growing up in the church that there was a small group of people that did all the work, which was true. They were the disciples, and the rest of the people just showed up and put money in the basket. Every one of you is called to be a disciple and is called to be a person that brings deliverance, the transforming power of God to people around you. That's what the Lord wants to do. The message that the Lord is giving us right now about his love and the healing of the heart I believe is going to be as big as the message that we got about freedom prayer. And I think about Daniel Tevenet, who's the messenger director for uh, France and Switzerland. Some of you remember, he was here five years ago, and he spoke to us and he said, you have excelled. No, he said, you have excelled. <laughs> remember Daniel? I'm going to tease him next time he comes back and ask him if I, want to, if I can translate for him. But Daniel said, your church has excelled in teaching people how to break strongholds. He said, in the next season, the Lord is going to show you how to heal the broken heart. He's going to show you how to heal broken hearts. And that's what this message of love is about. Bill Rice and his wife Sue are coming in uh, April, and they're going to do a thing on March, excuse me, on, on uh, healing room prayer and how to lead people into the healing of the heart. They've been doing it for 20 years. They lead the whole nation, not just the messenger churches, but a lot of other healing rooms as well. I believe that God is going to bring us. And Angie, you had no clue when you had, Angie had a vision this morning during communion of a person with an open wound. And it was from Isaiah 53, the broken reed passage about the tender heart of the Lord. And you said you saw that wound just begin to heal, heal up. And you weren't sure what it meant. And what the Lord said to me is, this is confirmation about the healing of hearts. I want to heal hearts. And he's starting with us. He wants to heal our hearts. God wants to bring us deeper and deeper and deeper in him. What did he say he wanted to do? I came to preach good news to the poor, sight to the blind, bind up the brokenhearted, set the captives free, what we've done in the church is we've come up with this whole corporate model of what the church is supposed to do. Now, the church is doing a lot of good things, and some of those things are related to those. We do a lot of compassionate ministry with the poor, but many churches don't do anything about getting people free from demons and demonic power. They don't know how to do that work of healing the heart. God is calling some of you, and you've been reluctant, and you've said, well, you know, I'm tired. I did it for a while. I'm not. And the Lord is saying to you, this is your job. This is what this church is about. 
and he's calling you again. Let me just close. The last two Ds, you've got them there. Destiny, discipleship, deliverance, and then destiny and deployment. A people who know who they are in God will do mighty exploits for the Lord. We want to excel in helping people understand their destiny in Christ. Do do we know what it means to be seated with Christ in heavenly places? That's one of our goals this year. I'm going to be doing a lot of teaching on that whole principle of destiny and identity in Christ. The last thing is deployment, impacting the church, the family, and the marketplace, deploying people. That may mean setting you free where the domain that you're in. So Jonathan Van Geest, Kent State's your domain. Education is your domain. Barry, your domain is aviation. Hospitality, Robert, all of us have a domain. And don't ever, the first domain that Dave came up with is the home. Okay? Those of you that are full-time working with kids, that's a domain, very important domain. For some of us, that's going to be mean being sent out like Chris and Tessa, being equipped to go out to all the world, and that's something we have to do a better job at. But this is the vision that God has given to River of Life. Are you ready to live life in 4D? We need to press into this. I feel like, Paul, we haven't arrived, but we need to be, keep moving toward this. And I just felt at the beginning of the year, I felt impressed with the Lord, share this with the people again. And uh, I'll be sharing about this throughout the year. But can we stand together? I want us to respond to the Lord today. I ask the question frequently as I get ready to uh, share the word. Lord, what is, it that you, uh, what is it you want to do in our hearts? How do you want to change us today? What do you want to do in us? So here's the question I have for you. How many of you have some point in your life treated Jesus more like he was a religion than like he was a real one that you wanted to walk with. I believe God wants us to say, Lord, that's over. Can we be honest? How many of you have been caught in that? I have in the past. I'm a recovering religious person. Can I lead us in a prayer? And even if you, if you can agree with that, agree with it. But even if you can't, if you just want to identify with everybody, just let's speak out loud before the Lord. Heavenly Father, We come to you today in the name of Jesus, your son. Forgive us when we've made your word into a religion. Forgive us, Lord, when we've made it about our works. Lord, teach us to walk in intimacy with you. Reveal your love in a deeper way. Help me to understand your heart and to understand my destiny in you. Hallelujah. Just let me pray for all of us right now before we head out. Father, as we come before you today, we just ask you, Lord, to work in our hearts. Lord, we can't make things happen. But we pray that those seven dimensions of community out of Acts, that you would help us to look more and more like that. 
And out of the community, out of the relationship with you and one another would flow these four Ds, these discipleship and deliverance, destiny, understanding who we are, helping others to understand their identity and their destiny in you, and then being deployed as you call us. Lord, where do you want us to go? How do you want us to make an impact? Forgive us, Lord, because some of us haven't asked that question because it's been all about us. I think I have a word for a number of people here. I get the impression it's, it's a couple dozen people. I feel like the Lord is saying, you have not been able to move into your destiny because there's so much pain in your life and you, you're constantly looking at your own wounds and you can't get over the pain. And the Lord is saying, this is the year I want to heal you. Will you just give that pain to me? Will you just say, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but help me? Just in your own prayer time with him. Lord, we need you. Heal our hearts. Raise us up to be the people you've called us to be. And I thank you, Lord, for these people you've given me to walk with together. Just bless us, Lord, as we go forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go in the blessing of the Lord.